Jeremy Wu, contributor to ESPN covering college basketball and the NBA draft, joins the show because with the draft expert, they control information. And when you get information out of them, you help the listener of Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm JP Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz. NMLS number 3112, Equal Housing Lender. Jeremy Wu's been watching these guys for a while. He follows them through preps. He goes through college. He goes overseas. He'll do it all. He's going to be a blowtorch of facts, figures, what these guys have performed and shown, and how NBA teams view them. Because he has intel on not only himself doing this for a while, he has the intel from what the league views them and how across the spectrum general managers, decision makers, scouts view these players. Before we get to Jeremy, I wanted to dish on the top 10 prospects. You know, it's tape-eating season. I've been eating tape for a while. I've been watching these players during the year as they play college basketball, as they go through the season. And now that we've gotten to this point where the draft is just around the corner, the combine happened, the lottery happened. The lottery kept the Jazz at 9, even though they had their 20% chance to go to the top four. They stayed at the slot that everybody expected them to. I see good players across this draft. And as I've said on previous draft shows, you're going to convince yourself that the player selected is going to be the guy. You're going to love the fit. It's going to be a great match of player and scheme. But having the insight before the games happen, before they actually get on the floor, before summer league, before things actually occur, it's important to have a baseline of, of what they can do. That's why I watch prospects. I look at ESPN's draft board, best available. That's what I use as a baseline for this sort of stuff. This top 10 is ESPN's top 10 prospects that they have, best available. And it's interesting to compare. When I started at the beginning of the season, there's one player, Nick Smith. He was a top five prospect. And now he's a first rounder, but he's not an automatic lottery guy. Amani Bates. He's a five-star guy, committed to Memphis his first year, ends up at Eastern Michigan, has to play his way into the league by playing in the combine. Let's get to the players because I want to let you hear from Jeremy Wu here coming up. And number one is an easy slam dunk, home run, out of the park prospect. We've been talking about him for an entire year. He's been on the scene for a while. I remember him battling Chet Holmgren in a tournament a couple years ago. So he's been around. But Victor Wembanyama, trauma for Wembanyama, the losing, yielding this player. And for San Antonio, this is going to change the franchise. He is generational. Best prospect since LeBron. Ask an NBA general manager, who is he? And they said, I don't know who he is. They don't know because they've never seen this. He has guard skills, even though he's 7'5". He makes Rudy Gobert look small when he takes a picture next to him. Seriously, look up the picture. Rudy looks small compared to this guy. I love that he watched Pistol Pete videos to create his handle. 
He's been put in a situation to get better every single day, and that's been the goal to make him this number one overall pick. He picks Mets 92, his team in France, because the French national team coach is going to be there. And that's going to further accelerate the development. He works with Dirk's shooting coach, Holger, to do those weird Dirk Nowitzki off-balance shots that you see. The showcase in October was phenomenal, and it showed all of the reason why teams are trying to get this guy because he could make a shimmy dream shake on Eric Mika over the top and score 30 points in each game, even though it's an exhibition. He is an amazing player, and he's going to turn San Antonio around. And then the next tier is a couple guys who you've heard of, Brandon Miller, number two on ESPN's Best Available. Strictly as a basketball player, there's a lot to love. He's rangy, he has good wingspan, he's a dynamic shot maker. He was the best player in college basketball. And you can see a lot of Paul George identity in the way that Brandon Miller plays. Scoot Henderson, the presumed second overall pick, has dropped a little. Now, this season in the G League was not like his first year, and it certainly didn't deliver on those exhibitions. Was it the same pressure of everybody watching that you had in those two games? Personally, I love Scoot. I love everything about his game. I love how competitive he is. I love how he came out in those exhibitions and wanted to take on Victor, and he did. I asked a GM about him way back, and he said in a non-Victor world, Scoot Henderson is a worthy number one pick. He has a Chris Paul hesitation to him. He knows when to go. He knows when to stop. He doesn't have the feel and the passing of Chris Paul, but he knows how to manipulate situations like him. And I can see how the shine and you're picking nits on a player after you've already seen him for a year, but being three is indicative of the season that he had with the G League this season. They weren't good. He didn't blow everybody away because it wasn't the same level of competition as that Victor game, and that's fine. He's still a top three pick. Then after that, you get to the Thompson Twins. Amen and Osser, Thompson, both 6'7". Both of them played at a different level. Overtime Elite is not the French League. It's not the G League. And it's not college basketball. It's a significantly less talent base. But these two have definitely shown themselves to be of a high caliber. Amen is the better passer of the Twins. And him being on the ball is why he's ranked above his brother, Osser. Osser's the better scorer, but he does it on volume. And he's the better athlete. And I think these two birthed the draft cliche of the season, one that I will keep an eye on heading into June 22nd when the draft happens. And Amen was asked about Osser, what are you getting if you're an NBA team and they draft your brother? And on the lottery broadcast, he said that he's twitchy. And I thought twitchy was reserved for football prospects. You know, a cornerback, I wanted to be twitchy. A wide receiver, twitchy. Defensive back, let's go. Give me twitchy. But they described a basketball player that way. And I like that. I like that these two putting in the work 
cross-training, bringing Twitchy into the conversation. After that, you get into a group of college players, starting with Cam Whitmore, the freshman out of Villanova. He broke his thumb in October, so you can tell definitely when Villanova had him on the floor and when they didn't. It was discernible. And you watch Cam Whitmore, and you see dunks on dunks on dunks. He is electric in transition. He competes on the defensive end. He is a powerful wing. And you love that Villanova attitude. Jalen Brunson has it. Mikhail Bridges has it. Villanova guys coming to the league with a level of brand recognition that translates to the NBA. The guy right after him on ESPN's Best Available is someone that he gets compared to very often, and it's Jairus Walker out of Houston. I like Walker personally more because I see him as more of a quicker player than Whitmore, but Walker's story appeals to what I see. He committed to Houston as the first five-star ever in that program, and he wanted to get coached because that's what Kelvin Sampson's going to do. He's going to coach you up, and Sampson did. Initially billed as a defensive player, he's shown flashes of excellent offense. I can picture him doing quarterback keepers on dribble handoffs and having so much success. Walker could be fun. And he played on a really good team and found himself into winning basketball. The offensive game can always get better, but he averaged 10 points on a good squad. Not in the ball of his hands as often. Another guy that excelled at the college level, Anthony Black. He had a really good year at Arkansas, took over the ball-handling duties, has great feel in Maui when they were at that Invitational. His open floor passing, threading the needle to Walsh, finding angles that at 6'7", a shorter guard might not see. The biggest deficiency is shooting. And where have I seen that before? Lonzo Ball. Lonzo had tremendous feel, knew how to play the game, didn't have a great shot. And that's kind of where Anthony Black is right now. He's a 30% catch-and-shoot player. You have to be convinced that you can teach him to shoot if you draft him in your program. Then comes up one of the best freshmen that burst on the scene at UCF, Taylor Hendricks, at number nine on best available. He is wingy. He is the wing of all wings. He looks exactly like an NBA mold player that you build on 2K. He has pick-and-pop versatility. He shot 41% from three. 15 points, six rebounds. He had a huge freshman year. And he dueled against Walker in a game this season. They were going back and forth. He projects as someone you can really mold because he's so young. And if this is the floor, ceiling is pretty high. Which leads to number 10. Somebody everybody knows. It's Grady Dick out of Kansas. You watch him and you see a shooter. He shoots. Has a high release. His mom played basketball at Iowa State. He fits the NBA mold because of how well he can shoot the basketball. But it's going to come down to the defensive end. Because if he's just a shooter, he's a 43-minute player, not a 48. He can't play that last five minutes. He would, at this point, get hunted in isolation every single time he's on the floor. And teams in college did that. Texas did that. With Timmy Allen and Serge Barry Rice. They would find him on a switch, tack him, 
see if he would hold up. So at the NBA level, he's definitely going to get hunted if it comes down to it. But can he compete on the defensive end? That's the biggest question for Grady Dick. That's the top 10, according to ESPN's Best Available, with a sprinkling of my thoughts. But don't take my word for it. Take Jeremy Wu's word for it. We talked about a lot of these guys, the top 10, who might be available for the Jazz at 9, 16, 28. I'll continue to do this as I roll draft experts on. They have the information. We want to hear it. So, five stars, nice reviews. That's all I ask of you. Let others know that you're listening to the podcast. The NBA Finals are happening. The draft's coming. This is an exciting time. I've got the Nuggets beating whoever comes out of Heat Celtics, even though that's been a phenomenal series. Really fun to watch. Two teams slug it out. But they don't have the same level as the Nuggets. Seriously, you watch that Jokic-Murray pick and roll, and you see how good that they're running it. It's Stockton Malone, except Malone can handle the ball as well. And people are just finding out about him. Oh, this Jokic guy, pretty good. Still won two MVPs, so I feel like he got validated as well. Okay, not going to do another open, but I am going to let you hear from contributor to ESPN covering the NBA draft, Jeremy Wu. He is on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. Please enjoy. When it comes time to move, it's always a hassle. Loading everything in the truck, hoping the priceless antique from your mother doesn't break, and trying to juggle the kids and dog in the middle of it all is enough to drive anyone crazy. But it doesn't have to be that way. The friendly, background-checked movers at Bailey's Moving and Storage have the expertise to move your family across town or even around the world. So when it's time to move, think Bailey's Moving and Storage. Call today at 801-218-2640 or check them out online at baileysallied.com. What is, for this time, your favorite draft cliche? You know, I think that's, that's tough because I think there often is like a little bit of truth to it and we all fall into those traps. Um, I don't know. I mean, sheesh. Maybe. <laughs> Are you a high motor guy? Are you oh. a high IQ guy? I use those in all seriousness. I use those in serious descriptors. I don't know. I don't know if I, uh, I, I guess the notion of like upside is always funny to me because it's, it's so subjective. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's funny because we do kind of, and, and as someone who like writes and talks about the draft, I think we, we do fall into these patterns of kind of falling back on these, these same, uh, you know, language descriptors or whatever you want to say. Right. And it, it can sound cliche, but at the same time, it's like, it's kind of how we how we talk about players sometimes, and so um, I don't know. I, I think I think it varies, um, but there there's a shed of truth I think to or a shred of truth <laughs> to how we use them sometimes. I was looking at even some of the players that I was wanting to talk to you about, and they're all six seven, they're all six eight, six nine, the same profile of of type of player is almost what you get in the draft, and it makes sense that some of these words come out for the same type of player. Yeah, certainly this, this draft too is, is somewhat heavy um, beyond the top. You guys, you got a lot of taller uh, forwards and wings who are kind of long and have, you know, versatile or potentially versatile 
uh, skill sets. So it is kind of, it's important to draw the distinction and differentiate, but there are, are also like buckets you can throw them all in that they all kind of fit, <laughs> which is, I guess, you know, part of why teams spend so much time uh, nitpicking and articulating you know, exactly how they are different from one another. It's nitpicking season for them. And at least with the jazz, they've got three first round picks in nine, 16, 28. What is the view from around the league, from what you've gathered, going to the combine, getting intel after of the Jazz's war chest of drafts, because not only do they have this, they have the 13 future first round picks as well from the trades that they completed last off season. Yeah. I mean, I think Utah is definitely in a good spot. Um, Obviously the the big trade they made um, with Gobert, I think has set them up pretty well, Uh, particularly seeing, you know, Minnesota has not yet, you know, they have those picks. Minnesota hasn't vaulted into like perennial playoff contender status. So there's a window here uh, for them to get younger and, and collect, um, you know, the right type of talent that sort of fits what they're doing. Um, so I, I think it's definitely a situation, and particularly, uh, you know, with the way Walker Kessler played uh, last year, I, I think they're in a pretty good spot to be pretty sustainable um, I don't know when it is they decide to flip the switch and say, hey, we're ready to be a playoff team again. I think you probably at least take a year or two. Um, but uh, it's definitely a good spot to be in, and I think a fun spot uh, where you can kind of imagine all these different scenarios um, as far as how they could build that team out and, and how it could go. Where were you on Kessler last year? Because everybody knew about the block percentage, setting records in the NCAA, but contributing day one to an NBA team was – not what I expected coming out of the draft. You know, it's funny. I so I saw Auburn play a lot last year because I spent a lot, I spent a lot of time in Atlanta. I was doing work on uh, with Jabari Smith, so I saw Walker play a ton. Um, I was higher on him earlier in the season. I think I kind of thought myself out of it a little bit, which I regret. Uh, so I ended up I don't remember where he was um, on the rankings. I had I I would have to go back and look but uh certainly was too low um but I I think in retrospect it's also funny because a lot of teams sort of did the same thing later in the year where it wasn't totally sure where he was going to land in the draft um the dialogue around that that I had heard um you know there were a few landing spots I think that were feasible but there were there were only a few spots right so we we weren't sure where he was going to go it's possible he could have slipped so 31 or 32. Um, and then obviously um, Minnesota took him and then the trade happened. So, you know, I, I didn't necessarily of course, see all this happening, but um, the numbers I think don't lie with him. Uh, he's been really effective uh, at the college level. Uh, and you, I mean, you see it translate immediately just when you're, when you're that tall and he's very, he's got good instincts and I, I think he's smart and obviously has, has the, the length and physical tools to, to be a very solid rim protector without having to go beyond his means. Um, it's a good place to be in. I, I think the question now is, you know, what skills can you stack on top of that? Uh, does he begin to shoot threes more consistently? Like, you know, how does Walker get better? Uh, but the ba- the baseline of where he is right now is certainly a win for, for Utah. So what's the theory on the Jazz with Danny Ainge and Justin Zanuck uh, leading the charge for this front office? Well, I, I don't know. I, I can typically speak to that but I, I do think I mean if you look at uh, Danny's history uh, in, in Boston you know they collected a lot of picks he kind of sat on those picks for a long time 
some of them obviously bore fruit. The picks that you know became the moves they made to get Tatum, and then uh, taking Jalen Brown at number three that year, which at the time was not a consensus thing at all. He had a bad, a bad freshman year at Cal. So, um, you know, those are two guys who've been around. I, I think uh, have drafted well in the past, and um, having multiple picks. Just speaking of this year, it puts them in position to I think. Know, take a swing if they want. Um, they have young guys in the roster already. If you look at who Utah has, um, there's probably not one guy at number nine who they're going to take and they're going to say, oh, this guy is going to make up the playoff team next year. But, you know, if you walk away with two or three, you know, depending on what you do with the picks, two or three guys who do sort of raise that long-term ceiling or fill in gaps, um, you know, that's a, that's a good outcome. And uh, I, I always think it's, there's some advantage too to being sort of sprinkled in different ranges of the draft and you can kind of, whether you're trying to trade the picks or what, you know, you have an overall view of the draft and you can get a lot of guys that can work out for you uh, if you have three picks. Uh, so I, I think it'll be an advantageous spot. What are the tiers breaking out in this draft? Because it's clearly Victor, Brandon, Scoot at the top as far as what you've got in the top three, but seemingly the rest falls into that second bucket where the Jazz are picking at it at nine and then another tier I'm sure comes out later with their 16 and 28 picks. Yeah, well, from my perspective, I mean, Lemanyama is in a tier of his own. Um, I, I think there is a top three, but it's it's really a top one and then a top two. Um, that's how I would say it. And the, the top one is much, I think, further uh, ahead than the others. Um, but... After those three guys, I think, and, and that's just sort of the general consensus. Like, not everyone has that opinion, but I, I do think that's sort of where we landed. Um, and it's almost June, so um, that means something. But you know, then you have this bucket of, I would think, five to seven guys uh, who are probably going to be the next group off the board. Uh, and you can really argue that a lot of different ways, depending on what you value and uh, if you're speaking for a team, uh, what that team needs, right? You have the Thompson twins, you have Cam Whitmore, Jarris Walker, Anthony Black, uh, Taylor Hendricks. I think you could, uh, some people would throw Grady Dick in that group. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, I mean, there are other players, Jason Wallace, um, Nick Smith, like Keontae George. Like there's an interesting group of players that uh, I still think there's a bit left to be kind of determined, um, depending on how this goes behind the scenes. Uh, but we kind of know who the next group's going to be. And then uh, there's sort of an interesting late teens, early 20s. And then it's it's very flat kind of after that. Um, but I, I think that type of draft where there isn't a ton of necessarily like obvious distinction and like delineation between these large groups of guys, uh, that always leads to, to A, steals. Um, just because <laughs> when you have guys who are relatively similar, uh, someone's going to fall. Uh, so there's always value to be had in that type of draft, but also people are going to screw up. Um, it always happens. We don't know who it's going to be, but uh, to me, that makes for a really interesting environment, trying to project out um, the picks and also long-term. Now, let me tell you about First Colony Mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders. Not only do they process mortgages, they also underwrite fund and close mortgage loans all in-house their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs just check them out first colony mortgage the official mortgage lender of the utah jazz 
What have you seen from one of the guys that I've really enjoyed watching his film, uh, Jairus Walker out of Houston. He looks like somebody who has a lot of energy defensively, has a nice uh, athleticism on the offensive end. What have you seen from him? Yeah, so I've watched him for since he was a freshman or sophomore in, in high school. Um, so his, his uh, development's been pretty, uh, I think, has been somewhat impressive in terms of when he was younger. Uh, Jared's always been a good passer. He's always been pretty versatile, and he's always had a really big, strong frame. Um, so I think he's learned sort of to curb turnovers a little bit. Um, he, he makes better decisions now. He gives you a lot of versatility on defense just because he's uh, got the physical strength and he's long and he's pretty agile. Um, I don't know if he's a guy who's necessarily going to switch one through five, but he, again, just, just having a guy like that in the back who can like do a few different things and he can rebound and start the break and he has some skill. Uh, those type of versatile guys can help fill in gaps uh, in lineups and play with a lot of different types of players. And I think there's just intrinsically some value in that if you're building out a modern team particularly in the front court, you know, the more guys you have who can sort of at least moonlight a little bit on the perimeter, uh, play out of different spots, it's valuable. Um, I think Jarris has to shoot a little bit better. Um, his confidence has improved, but it's not amazing. And his three-point shot has to get better. Um, his overall offensive game, like I don't think he's ever going to be a guy who you're really going to throw the ball to, like, hey, go score. But if you don't need that type of player, um, that's fine. Right? I mean, he can be really valuable just uh, – as one of the supporting cast uh, type guys. So um, I think that's why he's in that top group. He's, he's sort of got a unique profile um, relative to some of these other guys who are more of, whether they're more scoring at, scoring oriented uh, or, or whatnot. Um, I, I think he sort of has an interesting mix for what we call positionless basketball philosophy, so to speak. Who are some of the other guys who could fit in that positionless basketball because every single team in the draft is looking for that type of player. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at Anthony Black, who's one of the players I really like in this draft. Um, legitimately can play point guard at six, 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 seven. Uh, he can guard both smaller guys and guys that size. So he's got defensive versatility. Um, the main question with him is just continuing to improve as a shooter. How many shots is he going to make? But um yeah, I mean, the, the, the guys who are tall and have great positional size and, and, and very smart, um, you know, sort of a good decision-making, smart style of play, those are the type of guys who I think thrive in the NBA today, uh, particularly if you're going to play at a fast pace. Um, I mean, there's just a big advantage to having a big team and, and being able to, you know, if, you're, if you've got a bunch of guys at every position who are tall, I mean, it's a it can be a huge advantage um, and it gives you options in terms of rotation off the bench, like guys who you can play alongside a guard like that, like black. So uh, he's someone I would also look at um, from that perspective as someone who is, is really going to be, I think, well suited for where the NBA is going. Mentioned Grady Dick is somebody who has an outside shot of getting into that group of that next tier beyond the top one, top two, and then, the next grouping of players, what did he excel at uh, going at Kansas in a shot that was reformed after high school, apparently? Yeah, it's, I mean, with, with him, it's really all the shooting. I, I think um, the fact that he's such a highly regarded, almost universally 
uh, lottery level player. Um, speaks to how good of a shooter he is. Um, he's a, he's got a pretty well-rounded game, um, but I think the shooting is really what is going to be attractive. I mean, he, he's got positional size. Uh, I think he'll be able to hold his own defensively, if not be a great defender. Um, but uh, when, you know, when you're walking into the league with a really, really good, um, just like baseline as a jump shooter, uh, and then the goal becomes, you know, how do you become more dynamic as a shooter? How do you optimize that? Um, that's generally a good place to be in when you're, you know, 19 years old. I mean, it's a, if you're coming into the NBA with that skill, uh, even if it's just catching and shooting right away. So uh, I think just the need for wings, the need for shooting uh, sort of makes him a pretty easy player to evaluate. And the question is more just where does it end up upside wise for him? But I think the chances he has a, a long successful career, I think are pretty substantial. And I think that's why uh, teams hold him. So in such high regard, let's look at that 16 players that might be available at 16. Um, it seems like the entire Big Ten might be available when it comes to the next pick that the Jazz have with not only Bryce Sensabaugh, Jalen Hojavino, Jet Howard, Kobe Bufkin. What stands out in that 16 group that might be available for the Utah Jazz? Yeah, well, obviously it kind of depends on what direction they go at nine, right? Like say you take hypothetically like a Grady Dick at nine, you're probably not going to also take uh, Jen Howard at 16, right? I mean, there's some duplication there. Um, so, so some of that comes down to what you what you do, uh, you know, with that first selection. Uh, but if you look at Utah's roster, I mean, uh, yeah, there is a need for probably another guard or two in the long run. Um, you know, they, they they can justify adding depth to the in the front court. So there, there are a lot of directions you can go, uh, which I think makes 16 a pretty interesting pick. Um, like you said, you got all these different Big Ten guys. Uh, you have, you know, potentially a couple of guys who could maybe fall a little bit, whether it's Nick Smith or Keontae George, like Casey Wallace, guys who could maybe fall, you know, out of the lottery, not not too far. Uh, and then I'd look at I'd look at even uh, a guy like Noah Clowney uh, from Alabama, who's one of the youngest guys in the draft, uh, is a really interesting player in my opinion, um, and I think would, would fit an interesting need for them at, at 16 and were he there as well. Where are you landing on that spectrum of of belief, whether it's a young player or a, a four-year college player that might not have the same sort of upside as a younger guy, but still proved it at the college level? Well, I, you know, it really depends. Uh, it's a hard generalization to make. It really depends on the players, right? Um, I mean, it, you know, it also depends on where you're picking and what team you are. Like, it's a... It's, uh, it can be very relative with these types of things. Um, but, I, you know, I think if you're, say you're in Utah's position, uh, where you might not necessarily be in a rush, you might have a couple of years here to develop guys and figure out, um, you know, what the core group is going to be moving forward. Um, and you have a little bit of time to sort that out. So, uh, you know, I think there's some merit, uh, let's say we're talking about the 16th pick, to, to thinking Longview and, and taking a, a younger guy who might need a year uh, to really get comfortable. Um, you're hoping you get a, a payoff in the end, right? Uh, so, but it also depends on what position you're talking about. Like the history of freshman guards really like going, you know, outside the top 10 and uh, developing. It, it takes those guys time oftentimes. Um, but if you're talking about someone who is uh, forward or has size or something unique, um, 
necessarily come around every draft. Uh, that's the type of guy who I think is definitely worth swinging on if it's if it's something you can't get in every draft. Uh, you like personally, like I always make the, the argument that scoring guards come around every year. Uh, there are varying degrees of how good they are, but uh, if you just think about like average height distribution, like there's always going to be guards because most of us humans are not six foot six six foot eight and above, right? So there's always going to be guards, and guards are always going to want to score. Um, and there's they always trickle up, you know, in the college level. There's always scoring guards, um, and you see guys come off the radar sometimes and make it in that regard as well. So you got to be, to me, in my opinion, you, you have to be really confident in uh, you know who you're taking if you're going to take a, a scorer sort of in that range. Looking at the top of guys that we've already talked as in a tier of his own, Victor Wembanyama. Just as we start to wrap up here on the podcast. What makes him the best prospect in this draft? What is the electric point? Because watching that showcase in Las Vegas back in October was electric to see, but what did he show during his season that keeps people on Victor Wembanyama? Yeah, well, I just think he he's kind of like, in a lot of respects, sort of the perfect uh, modern basketball player uh he just happens to be also be seven foot five right i mean if, if victor was six eight he'd probably still be the number one pick with the skill set that he has right so it's just it adds another layer to that when you factor in the height uh and the things that he can do at that size um there's never really been anyone you know we've said this a lot uh but there's just never been anyone quite like him who has come along with this skill set uh, at the time, I mean, there have been a lot of amazing seven-footers in the past and past generations, but like we can't say that, you know, we can't say that one of those guys would would have developed this way necessarily. Uh, although it's possible, right? If you think about what uh, is asked of players now, uh, big men now versus them. But uh, I mean, regardless, I just think speaking to your question about his season, I just think the competitiveness he showed, the consistency, and the production, the fact his team is winning, uh, a lot of it has to do with him. Uh, he hasn't missed a game. He's been healthy. He's been, you know, day in and day out sort of proving uh, the type of player that he is. And he's playing against older guys in France already. So uh, I, I just think that the the way that a player like that can kind of spark the imagination, uh, even for guys, you know, who have been around scouts who are, you know, been around for 30, 40 years watching basketball. I mean, uh, it, it's a unique thing. Uh, and, and if you just if you think about it, just his his potential to be so impactful both uh, on offense and defense, uh, if he sort of scratches at that the surface of that uh, wherever his ceiling is, which is hard to say, um, and it's exciting. So uh, not somebody I would recommend passing on. <laughs> Anyone would love the fit at number one, but how does it specifically impact the San Antonio Spurs with the players that they do have? Well, it's huge for them. Um, and I think they have guys in place where not not only do they have players who sort of at least fit positionally to start, but they also have a pretty clean cap sheet. There's no bad salary on their books. They've kind of had the decks already clear. Uh, so that puts them in position to really tailor the roster around Victor right away. Uh, I don't know how they're going to use their cap space. They're going to have some. Um, I don't know if they'll try to make the playoffs next season or if they'll wait a year or and sort of let this happen naturally. But um, I do think they're in a pretty good position to kind of assess 
you know, how they want to build this team around him and, and then acquire those types of players. Um, so I, I think it'll ultimately will help him to land in a situation like that. And obviously a, a, a franchise that's developed a Hall of Fame caliber big man in the past. So, Have you seen the pathways grow for prospects? Because not only do you have Scoot overtime elites producing the Thompson twins, there are different avenues beyond college basketball that these guys can go to that they will still be found by the NBA. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's just the world we live in uh, now with, with players. There are all these different pathways and uh, you know, in some respects it creates challenges for teams trying to evaluate these different levels uh, in terms of, you know, what translates, what we should care about, what we shouldn't care about. Uh, It definitely makes it interesting. Um, But I think that's just the nature of, kind of the nature of things now um, where guys are forced to go to college. Uh, so we'll see again, this, all the NIL uh, world, NIL world is, is changing things for colleges again. So we, I don't know if we'll see sort of another influx of the higher end guys going back to college, but uh, I just, ultimately I just think it's good that there are options and, and players have choice. As we close in on a couple weeks to the draft, what is the last remaining things that you have to tick off before draft night on June 22nd? At this point, really just, uh, I don't know. I I always feel like by June, most of the work is done. Um, Maybe I'm brushing up on things here and there, but a lot of it is just being on the phone, frankly, Uh, (laughs) trying to find out what's going on. you would hope that most of the evaluation of players is done by now and you don't have to think too hard about it uh, in most cases. Um, so, you know, again, it's different now. Like for me in my previous job, you know, I was a lot, I would be a lot busier because I would be tasked with more things and it was really just me covering the draft. But, uh, you know, now uh, splitting the duties up a little bit, um, I, I actually don't have quite as much to do. Uh, so <laughs> I actually don't mind that. Apologies from taking you from the phone but we do appreciate the information. He is Jeremy Wu of ESPN, helping cover the NBA draft for them over there. Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time. No problem. Thank you.